Welcome back to My Practical Psychologist with Dr. Brian Chandler. We are so excited to start discussing the cognitive component of emotional fitness today. Last week was our first episode and we discussed emotional fitness in a very general sense. So Dr. Chandler, would you mind giving us a recap of last week's episode? Certainly. Uh, last week we introduced uh, the concept of emotional fitness. This is uh, something I've developed over the last few years in my practice as I've worked with lots of patients. I've, and as I've observed our our field of mental health, uh, I think we've gone in, in the wrong direction, and mental health has become this kind of confusing, mystical thing. And everyone seems to be having depression, anxiety, and and not sure how to deal with it. And it's been sort of framed as an illness. And so then we turn to biology, and we we think it's it's just medicine that's going to fix it. And and I think there's so many other things we need to look at as we understand uh, how the human organism works. And so emotional fitness really is, it's not a therapy modality like psychodynamic or humanistic. It's not a technique like hypnosis um, or, or EMDR. It really is a more comprehensive uh, approach to uh, mental health in, in, in individuals. It looks at all variety of aspects of our lives and to help us to address each of those aspects and to get them into balance. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I love how clarifying the message is for um, emotions in general. I think that's so wonderful because some of it was once taboo. Now it was talked about almost in a very commonplace sense. And I think the way you talk about emotional fitness and mental illness helps clarify a lot of those stigmas. And I think that's a really important thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so today, getting into the cognitive component of emotional fitness, um, I'd like to discuss the mind-body connection with you, Brian. You've talked about that and studied that throughout your practice. Would you mind discussing that and explaining that? Yes, uh, this is a critical concept to understand, something we call neuroplasticity, big word. It has to do with the brain, and uh, basically what that means, it's the tendency for the brain to continue to restructure itself based on experience. Um, When I think about this, I think of um, a a developmental psychologist, a neuroscientist named Mark Lewis. He has an interesting story himself. Um, Many years ago in in a boarding school in Boston, he was heavily into drugs, and and then he went out to Berkeley and uh, continued with his... uh, drug use and uh, um, actually tells the story of uh, one time his friends uh, at this party, they actually thought he he overdosed and died and they were looking for a, a bag big enough to put his body in. And then he started to talk. And so they <laughs> they, they realized he was still alive. But uh, he continued with his substance use, drug use for a, a couple more years. But then he finally uh, snapped out of it and uh, uh, started to uh, study the brain. He was fascinated by the brain, and he became a developmental psychologist. Continued to study the brain, and and he talks about the brain. And um, if we were to take a brain scan of anyone's brain right now, that is simply a, a snapshot in time of that brain. And I think we often misunderstand. We think, oh, depression, anxiety, or other other issues. We think, oh, look, the brain is is functioning this way, or these parts are firing, these parts aren't firing. That's why they're depressed, or that's why they're anxious. And again, it's just a snapshot in time. And what what um, 
Dr. Lewis says is that physiology is always paralleling psychology. That is so interesting. I really love that. So would you mind giving us a couple of examples of how uh, physiology parallels psychology? Yes, certainly. Um, a good example is uh, um, the taxi drivers in London. They're required to take a very, very uh, difficult test because they need to know all the, the streets and different places throughout the city. And uh, if you, we were to take a brain scan of the taxi driver's brains, the part that deals with space, spatial relations would be so well-developed. Um, another example is if, if we raised a, a, a child, a baby, in darkness, um, the brain, uh, the, the synapses for vision would be pruned because they're not being used in darkness. Yeah. And the brain would then develop other areas like, like hearing that would need to be used in its place. And so mm -hmm. the brain is constantly adapting and, and modifying and, and changing according yeah. to our environment and its needs. That is so interesting. Would you say that's more nurture over nature in those uh, instances? Yeah, right. The environment, the nurturing that, that we're experiencing certainly will impact the brain and, and modifies and the brain. That is so interesting. I really love that. Do you have any other examples of... Um, of that that you'd like to discuss? Uh, I think just dealing with mental health, depression, anxiety. Um, if we were to take a brain scan of someone who's severely depressed, the parts of the brain that, that show depression would be lit up like a Christmas tree. And uh, again, I think the mistaken belief is that, oh, I'm depressed because my brain is defective. Right. Look, the brain scan even shows that. Well, I would say, well, no, you have evolved. The brain has evolved based on your environment, your thinking patterns, your behavior patterns, to where it's become very. You've become very depressed, and now the brain scan, which is a snapshot in time, is showing that yes, you are very depressed. Now you have okay. the ability to do some things differently, thinking differently, behaving differently, to start to change it to where the brain scan maybe in three, four, six months from now would not have the part that just shows depression all lit up. It would be yeah. different. That is so interesting because I think, you know, the first thing we automatically assume when we see our brain scan is that's the cause of something. Right. right? Because we want to think everything is genetic. Right. But that's so interesting that you say that some of the things we do can be causing it. It's not the fact that our brain is making us depressed. Right. It's just telling us that we are. That's that right. That is so interesting, Exactly. Brian. That yep. is so cool. Yeah. So um, you say that co the cognitive component of emotional fitness is foundational. Why would you say that is? The cognitive component will impact all the other components that I, that I talk about, you know, like physical, social, spiritual, mental, familial, vocational. No matter which component we're looking at, the, the mind is, is operating and is thinking. And is so, so it's, it's impacting all these other components. So I always like to talk about cognitive first and, and, and identify it as really one of the primary components of emotional fitness. Because if we understand that piece, we start to get that piece in balance, it's going to impact all the others in a positive way. That is so interesting. So you say that the cognitive component is, is pretty important for everybody. Would you say that maybe other components would be 
more important for certain individuals than than other ones. Uh, you mentioned a few of them. Would you mind yeah. saying a couple of those again? Certainly, um, um, someone who's very religious and uh, spiritual is a big part of their life. Uh, yeah. That would be a significant po- component. Their right. their purpose, their sense of a supreme creator. That's going to be very significant for some. Uh, someone who maybe is not very spiritual, they, that may not be as significant, but maybe a um, familial, maybe the family relations, or maybe the vocational, their their career and their job is very significant for, for their identity, and so that's going to be more significant. But regardless of which uh, person you might be and what areas are, are uh, more pronounced, the cognitive one is going to be, I think, pretty much equally foundational yeah. for all of us. Because we all share thoughts, right? That's it. Even if we don't share the same That's thoughts it. about religion or That's family, right. we all have that same yeah. brain function. That's right. Okay. That's, right. That's interesting. So are you saying it's it's a lot about how you live your life, your priorities? You know, if you prioritize certain things, sure. those components will have a greater effect on That's your emotional right. fitness. That's right. For sure. Yep. yep. Well, thank mm-hmm. you, Brian, for clearing mm-hmm. that up. Um, so... You talk about cognitive files when you talk about the cognitive component of emotional fitness. Would you mind explaining what that is and how exactly they affect our daily lives? Certainly. So uh, the human organism, uh, uh, as as a baby, as a toddler, a young child... The human organism is organizing information. Is uh, the, the the brain is absorbing all these experiences and all the things going on and and taking in information and and I like to say say it's it's like creating cognitive files. It's kind of like a complex computer. So when we're just little, we've created a, a cognitive file for for mommy, for daddy, for each of our siblings, um, for grandma. Um, for for certain foods, for activities that we do. If we go out and we ride our bike, we, we have a bike file. We may have a doggy file, a kitty file, all these different files. And, and we're putting information in, into each of those files that to, to make sense out of our world and actually to help us and to protect us. For example, if, if we have a file that uh, uh, some dogs are mean – you know that can be a protective mechanism, and but then it can be also dysfunctional if if we have this this phobia of of all dogs because mm-hmm. all dogs aren't aren't necessarily mean. So again, that's how the cognitive files work. And as a child, we don't really know; we're not aware that we're creating these files. And and so when we become uh, teens and into our uh, young adulthood, I'm often dealing with, with those age age groups because I'm teaching them that hey, now you're old enough to understand. You have created thousands of files, and some of the thoughts you put in those files are are irrational, unhealthy, and ineffective, and they're causing some problems, some of the reasons why you're experiencing depression and anxiety. Yeah, of course. And previously, you've mentioned how we can have experiences, and those can lead into thoughts, and those can lead into feelings. Would you mind kind of discussing that and maybe giving an example of how Maybe we could change our thoughts for the cognitive component to be more emotionally fit. Yes, this is what I, I teach all my clients and I speak about when I go about to, to, to speak to groups. Uh, um, the way it works, and I have a little flow chart I, I often uh, display when I speak, but uh, we have events at the top. And the first first slide I show when I explain this, I, I keep one of the components out because we often don't realize it, but we think events 
then lead to feelings, which then lead to behaviors, which then leads to an outcome. So for example, an event, someone calls you name. I feel hurt. I feel mad. The behavior is I either retaliate or I, or I, I withdraw. And the outcome is I maybe I don't have many friends because I'm just staying by myself. Well, I always tell people now the event of being called a name did not cause the feeling of being sad or angry because we cannot have any feeling until we first process it. Our brain is always operating. We mistakenly think the event causes the feeling because our brain is so fast, so quick. It's just milliseconds and we have feelings. But if we could turn the brain off, which we know we can't, but if we, for some reason we could, we wouldn't have any feelings. We'd just be in a daze. We wouldn't feel a thing. And so when someone calls us a name, we have to process and decide how we want to think about it. So the, 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 the flow chart should then go instead of event to feeling, it goes event and then thoughts and then feelings behaviors, outcome. So the thought piece is in there. And it's so fundamental because the thought is what drives the feelings. In fact, I always like to refer to some other professionals in the field um, to to back up maybe some of the things I'm teaching. David Burns, he's a well-known psychiatrist. And uh, many years ago, he wrote the Feeling Good Handbook, um, the new mood therapy, and he talked about – he was a, a psychiatrist, so here's a, a, a professional prescribing medication to individuals who are depressed. And he's noticing that oh, they're kind of getting better, but n- not really. So a lot of them are still struggling. And so he researched this. He researched it, and he discovered cognitive – kind of cognitive therapy, which is a therapy modality, but uh, it, it's – very much what I talk about when I talk about my cognitive component has to do with our thinking. And so he termed depression as not a, an emotional disorder, but rather a thinking disorder, which I think is wow, very, very accurate. Yes, yeah, so a thinking disorder. And he's big on talking about thought distortions. He uses some different terms uh, than, than me, but he talks about positive and negative thoughts. I talk about rational and irrational, but that's the idea that uh, we have to take control of those thoughts. Those are what, are, those are what makes us depressed and anxious. That is so interesting. And I love that you make the distinction between thoughts and feelings, because at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, a lot of the time we can think that that's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to realize that it's not, I think helps the individual understand that they can change, you know, the way that they're perceiving something. And that is just very powerful. That is a very powerful principle. Yeah. And that's the one that, again, I primarily, uh, that's what everyone that comes to me needs to understand because, again, they're coming with depression, anxiety. And uh, if they don't understand the origin, uh, the source, then it's not just going to a therapist and just, oh, tell me how you're feeling. Okay. Okay. You can get through this, you know, Cheer up, um, it'll get better. And if we don't understand how we got there, then we're not going to have any change. And so nah. it's so fundamental to help people understand that the thoughts are yours to control. And uh, we need to get really, really good at managing those thoughts, going back into the files, those thousands of files, and, and identifying some of the thoughts that are unhealthy. And and I, I, I point out there's really just two types of thoughts, again, different from what uh, – Dr. Burns talks about the positive and negative. 
I don't know that that quite captures what, how I see it. I like to talk about it as rational and irrational. Okay. Rational being logical, sensible, and reasonable, and irrational being illogical, uh, not sensible, and unreasonable. And that is the key, and it's our choice which we want to, which we would like to choose. And the, the rational thoughts are what we want. We want to b- become really, really good at choosing mm-hmm. rational thoughts because the emotions that follow are appropriate. Now, I should, I should clarify because when people come to see me, I, I, I can't guarantee that their life is going to be forever happy 24-7 because sadness, disappointment, these, these anger, these emotions are, are appropriate, natural human emotions. The key is to go back to the thoughts and make sure the thought that's driving that emotion is rational. So, for example, if someone comes in feeling sad because um, their best friend moved across country, um, then I want to explore what's what's the thought pattern behind that. Right. If they're thinking, oh, I'm never going to have any friends anymore, I'll never be able to talk to them, my life is going to be horrible, <laughs> I'm going to say, those are all irrational thoughts. And so the sadness you're experiencing is is excessive and unnecessary. Now, if they're feeling sad because they say, you know, my best friend is moving away and I'm not going to be able to spend as much time as I used to, I'll have to try to make some other friends in, in their place. I'm going to say, you know what? Those are very rational thoughts. And so the sadness you're experiencing is appropriate and you should embrace it, express it, allow yourself to feel it, talk about it, and then figure out how to cope and move forward. So that's that's the key, but just becoming so good at really getting into our files and, and becoming aware of, of our thoughts and if they're rational or irrational. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And so before we finish today, Ryan, how would you say what would you say to the listeners to apply these foundational principles of cognitive of the cognitive component? How would they change those cognitive files or become more rational in their thoughts? What's something that you would say to the listeners? I would say get out a piece of paper and write down at the top event and then have have an arrow going down to the next level of thought, an arrow going down to the next level of feeling an error going down to the next level of behavior, and an error going down to the last level of outcome. And I should say, this is chapter 11 in my book, Approaching Life with Confidence. <laughs> and so this is important, and this is what I teach everybody. And so you should do this. And I say what you should do at the end of the day. Usually it's easiest to identify feelings that you had. And so you go back and you fill in, okay, I was kind of depressed or anxious here. So write that in. And then you go back up to the top and say, well, what was going on? What event was going on? Oh, I was in class, and the teacher was talking about an upcoming test. Oh, okay, and I felt anxious. Yeah, okay, so the test. And, and that's what it was. And then you start to fill in the thoughts and get really, really good at, at choosing or identifying the thoughts that you've you chosen that led you to be anxious. You may have thought, oh, I'm going to flunk. I can't do this. I'm not smart enough. And those are the thoughts that are going to lead you to feel anxious. And then you go have to go back in there and change those thoughts. Make sure they're rational. Get rid of the irrational ones. That's what's going to cause you to be anxious or depressed. So that little exercise, yeah. I think, will 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 do wonders for you and to do it on a consistent basis. Right. That's yeah. wonderful. Thank you so much, Brian. This has been so informative and helpful. So everyone, we hope that you will do that chart and that you will see the miracles and blessings in your life because of it. You've been listening to my practical psychologist with Dr. Brian Chandler. Thanks for joining us and join us next time.